Well, we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Ruth. As Alex said, we're going to be in Ruth 4. So unfortunately, the study in Ruth will end. But uh, it doesn't mean that we're not going to stop studying the Bible afterwards. Um, as Pastor Ray mentioned, we're going to be studying the book of 1 John next. And the calendar is, the preaching calendar is slowly taking shape. And, and um, so that, that'll be fun too. But uh, yeah, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's, uh, let's pray and let's uh, get into Ruth 4. Father, we're grateful to you for your loving kindness to us, for how you faithfully show us how strong you are, how mighty you are, how worthy of worship you are because of your ability to intercede for us for because of your ability to move everything out of the way so that your plan will succeed despite whatever comes up in our lives and so father as we turn our attention to your word we pray that you would help us just to have a larger um, view of who you are and a greater appreciation of you just knowing that you are stronger you are able and because of that you deserve all the glory so, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself this evening. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, it's December, so we are rapidly approaching Christmas, as I'm sure many of you are aware of, um, regardless of whether you did your shopping last, uh, or, uh, yeah, last Friday or whether you're just thinking about it later. Um, Christmas is rapidly coming. For those of you who are in school, you know this, but it's kind of like far off in the distance because finals are looming. And so we will, we will be praying for you as you guys uh, go through finals. Um, but as we approach Christmas, right, the memories of Christmases of the past, they partially inform our expectations of what Christmas will look like this year. And I don't know about how Christmas uh, was like for all of you, but for my family, uh, we were allowed to create wish lists wish lists that, were, that functioned as a bit of a guide for all the aunties and uncles to determine what to get us um, for, uh, for Christmas. And, and um, it wasn't necessarily a guarantee, but it was a guide as to what to get us. And uh, me, being the greedy person that I was, once those, uh, you guys remember newspapers? Right? Once, once newspapers came out with the Christmas toy ads, right? Toys R Us, when it was still alive and well, when, when, that, when, when that came out, I was looking at that ad, and the first thing I did was go into the, to the Toys R Us ad, and I wanted to see, okay, which one of my toys are being, being highlighted, because I wanted something, right? Or, you know, that was the only way that they could get me out of, out of the house on a Saturday to go to the store with them, to go shopping with them, right, is to go to Toys R Us to visualize the possibilities. You know, once that list was compiled and was sent out to the aunties and uncles, the rest of December was filled with anticipation, right? eager anticipation as I began dreaming what it would be like to add another Power Ranger toy to my collection, to put another Lego set into my collection. I was just dreaming, anticipating of that time or what it would be like to get a Pokemon um, Game Boy or, or a Game Boy with uh, Pokemon Yellow attached to it. You know, That was one of those things that I wanted. Um, that was the anticipation that drove every single day of December. And on those rare occasions that my family actually got me something I wanted, rare, okay, rare. Um, you know, the moment you pull back that wrapping paper, right, and you see that packaging that you were hoping for, and it's just like, oh, I can't believe it, no way, right? The, the happiness, the joy is just surging through the roof. And that's what happens when our anticipation is fulfilled, that's what happens when our anticipation is fulfilled. As we, as we uh, seek to complete our study in the book of Ruth uh, this evening, we've come to the portion of the story where we, knowing the story, having grown up with it, um, having heard of it, this is what we've been anticipating. Or we've been anticipating the end because we know how cool it is. But, you know, let's remove ourselves from the equation. This, this ending is exactly what... Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, it's what they were anticipating, right? They were looking for resolution when it came to uh, their situation. Um, Naomi, just looking out for her daughter-in-law. Ruth, 
desperately longing to be married to Boaz, and Boaz, the same thing for Ruth. This is the thing that they're waiting for, and yet they have to wait. There's a little bit of drama that they have to endure first. The pain that Naomi and Ruth had long endured through the deaths of their husband in the land of Moab, it's about to be reversed as Boaz pursues the necessary steps in order to redeem Ruth and marry her. And this journey that we've been tracking during the last couple weeks, right, you, you remember that there are portions of it that seems like it's all up to chance. It's all chance happenings, good fortune, if you will. But it really is the work of a sovereign God intervening in the lives of his people in order to bring about his salvation plan. That's what this is about. And so this evening, we're going to take a closer look at how he has done this in the past by examining three proofs of God's ability to deliver hope to his people. Three proofs of God's ability to deliver hope to his people. When I say proofs, I mean like, you remember geometry? Proofs? Right? Proving a, a geometric rule, that's what we're doing. Three proofs of God's ability. The first proof of God's ability to deliver hope to his people is God makes Boaz the kinsman redeemer. God makes Boaz the kinsman redeemer. Verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So sometime after Ruth leaves the threshing floor, Boaz goes up to the city gate and he sat there in order to catch Elimelech's closer relative as he went about his business. In ancient days, the city gate was an important place. It was um, you know, not only the entrance to the city, but it was also the place of official business. It was known as the meeting place for the social and legal matters of the day. And so Boaz, he goes there and he waits. He's got a legal matter. He's got a social matter that needs to be addressed. And so he's waiting at the gate and, oh, lo and behold, the relative that he was talking about to Ruth, the one who could throw a wrench in the, in the plans, who could prevent them from getting married, Lo and behold, this man walks aside, comes through, and he says, hey, turn aside, sit down with me, let's talk. Right? And so again, we see the author of Ruth using chance language, but that chance language, of course, is not chance, right? It's not good fortune that this close redeemer, this uh, close redeemer, this close, close relative just so happens to walk by, God sovereignly puts him there at that moment, at that time, so that they can talk. And so uh, you'll also notice that this close relative, he remains nameless. Um, we don't know what his name is, and the author doesn't give us any hint as, who, as to who he is. And perhaps this is to protect his identity. But perhaps it's also to demonstrate that, yes, he is an obstacle, but he's actually not that big of an obstacle because God's going to move him out of the story pretty quickly. Verses 2 to 4. So he, that is Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he, that is the closest relative, said, I will redeem it. So after, he gather, after Boaz gathers the required number of elders to conduct business, at least for this particular town, uh, the situation of uh, Naomi is laid out. In our previous few weeks of, this, of a study in the book of Ruth, we did not really have time to explore what happened when Elimelech and his family uh, had to move from Israel to, to Moab. And uh, because land was considered an inheritance from God given to his people to steward, it was their portion to take care of, Land was something that you held on to tightly. It was a way for you to demonstrate that you wanted a part of God and a part of his people. And so the selling of land to survive was something that people did um, as a very last resort. Well, 
not the last, last line of resort, but the second to last thing of resort. They didn't do it unless it was absolutely necessary. Right? If the poverty continued and the land was sold, then you get to the last resort thing, which is you sell yourself and anyone in your family into slavery to pay off your debts. Right? And, and um, hoping that you either work off all your debts or that some family member will come along and pay off your debts so that you're no longer a slave. Um, if you... Uh, if it wasn't, if it didn't go down to the slavery part and it was just the, the land part and you sold your land, uh, you could have a relative come by and buy, buy out the debt and return the land back to you. Um, and if you still couldn't afford it, if you were so deep in the hole that you, you uh, couldn't get yourself out and you didn't sell yourself into slavery in the, land, in the year of Jubilee, right? every 50 years, in the year of Jubilee, all that property gets released back to the original owners because, again, the idea is the land belongs to God, and he's given it to particular families. Right? This is their inheritance. This is a part of, um, of what they uh, rightfully have in God, in the land. And so what we, see, uh, what we saw back in Ruth 1 is that Elimelech, he sold his land already. Like, he likely sold his land already in order to help his family survive. And when he was thinking about it, he was like, well, I'm not going to sell my family into slavery, so we're moving. Or we're going to go to Moab. And so uh, he had to make the uh, tough choice of doing that. So now the land belongs to someone else. When Ruth and, and Naomi enter back into the, into the land, they could potentially reclaim it, but there's a problem. There's a legal problem. Back in, uh, in uh, Israel, ancient Israelite law, inheritance only goes to the sons or daughters of, uh, of the head of the household. It doesn't belong to the widow, or nor does it belong to the daughters-in-law uh, or the, husband, uh, or the um, uh, son-in-laws. Right? So it doesn't belong to them. It only belongs to the biological children. So we have a problem. We have a problem. Naomi and Ruth, they have no place that is their own to sustain them financially. And so um, they need someone. They need a close relative to come alongside to redeem the land so that they can be uh, sustained. Therefore, when Boaz tells the closest relative that Naomi's back and she has to sell the land which belongs to Elimelech, it's not like she actually has land to sell, but she's actually asking for this nearest relative to fulfill his obligation to begin the, um, the buyback process, the legal process to reclaim the land. And that's according to Leviticus 25.25, which states that the nearest relative is the one who uh, buys back what his relative sold, since all land belongs to God. And uh, the land that people had was a part of their family's uh, part in God's people. So... We have an issue here, though, right? Because this nearest redeemer, he can do that. And you notice um, in the summary of Leviticus 25, 25, it says nothing about having to marry any daughter-in-law, right? It's, it doesn't say anything about having to marry anybody. All you do is buy back the land. So we, we have a bit of a problem. Um, so the, the, the hope that we all have that Boaz will get to marry Ruth it's held up by this one issue. If this nearest relative wants to take the land, he can. And Boaz can marry Ruth, but there'll be nothing for the family. Right? And so it's a, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a problem. And so um, Boaz, he kind of sets up the situation. And he, he just lets the, he lets the other relative know, if you want to take it, that's great. But if you don't, I want to take it. And uh, since... Since Naomi and, and Ruth were both widows, the act of land redemption would actually be greatly benefit this close relative because neither widow had sons, right? All the sons uh, are, are dead. Um, there, there are no males in the household that could claim that land. So this land would be considered this nearest relative's um, own land, right? It would go into his holdings, and he'd be able to steward it. And, and all that really matters is that he gets that land under, uh, back to the family name. And so you see, land redemption, it increases this close relative's own wealth while allowing him to fulfill his family obligation. It makes him look good. 
that he would be willing to return this piece of land back to his own family. And so this is a no-brainer, right? I get to increase my wealth and look good in society? Sure, I'll do it. And so he says, yeah, I'll redeem it. No-brainer, I'll redeem it. But he speaks too soon because Boaz continues in verse five saying, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. There's the rub. It wasn't as simple as just land redemption. What was also being requested was uh, for this close relative to redeem the family, to continue the family line. Um, this nearest relative was overeager. He didn't hear all the details uh, to, about redeeming the land. And so he, now he hears that there has been a request to raise up for Ruth's husband family, right? A child under his name so that that child could take the land that is naturally his, that is rightfully his uh, or hers, and continue on, all right? To, so that Elimelech's family name is, uh, con- is, continues to be alive in Israel. Um, it may be alarming to see Boaz, who's never called Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, right? but there's no prejudice here. He's probably referring to her in the most legal sense, the formal legal sense, where she is known in that community as Ruth the Moabitess. And so it's a legal transaction, so Ruth needs to be identified very specifically. That's why he does it. Going back to the idea of raising up children to continue on the family name uh, is one that we explored last time in Ruth 3. It's a common practice. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East, uh, but it was also specifically outlined in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. Now, in that passage, it applies specifically to brothers who live together. They live in the same household, the same family property. And it covers what would happen if one of those brothers dies, uh, or one of those brothers who is married dies but has no children. The responsibility of the surviving brother would be to marry his widowed sister-in-law. I know it sounds kind of gross, but that was the custom. Or to marry his widowed sister-in-law in order to raise up children for his dead brother. The, the firstborn of that union will assume the name of the deceased brother so that he will not lose out on his inheritance so that the family line continues, the family name continues. So by marrying the widowed sister-in-law, the surviving brother sacrifices himself, essentially, to make sure that his brother continues to have offspring. It's death to self with great sacrifice. And so what Boaz is saying here is, if you buy back this land, there's an, an additional condition to it. You have to redeem Ruth and raise up children to continue on her husband's name. And as Boaz is willing to do that, as he says, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. He is demonstrating that he's willing to go further. Or he's willing to sacrifice to an even greater degree because he wasn't, necess- he wasn't blood relatives with Ruth's deceased husband. He's just a cousin of Elimelech. He's just a family member of Elimelech. He's not even even direct family, so he has no obligation. He has no responsibility to raise up children in the name of Ruth's uh, deceased husband, and yet he's willing to do so. He's willing to do so, and we'll see why later. Again, note that this is not required. Okay, this is not required of him. This is not, is not outlined in Leviticus 25. It's not outlined in Deuteronomy 25, where he, the near relative who is not a brother, uh, has to do this. He didn't have to do this. And if you remember also, back in Ruth, um, Ruth 3, she was free to marry whoever she wanted. And she could have married anyone, literally anyone. Right? And she would have been provided for. She would have been taken care of. She didn't have to marry the nearest family member. They didn't have to raise up a child for her dead husband. They could have just married him, and they would have been fine. But Ruth, in her love for her mother-in-law, in her love for Naomi, she asked Boaz specifically, no, I don't want you just to marry me. I want you to redeem me. And she triggers 
a blend of Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 so that not only will she be married, but her family, Naomi's family, will continue on. Right, so out of her love for Naomi, she asks for more. And out of his love for Ruth and Naomi, Boaz agrees to do that at great cost to himself. No longer is Boaz entitled to his own inheritance. No longer is he, uh, will he, at least from a legal perspective, be his own person. Because he is raising up children for Ruth's deceased husband. He chooses, he chooses because of his love for Ruth and Naomi to basically eliminate himself completely in order to redeem her. That's what he wants to do. So this is a very costly transaction. And the closest redeemer, the closest relative, he understands that, which is why in verse six, the closest relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now, some commentators have said that this relative, this close relative is greedy, which is why he is concerned about ruining or jeopardizing his own inheritance by redeeming the land. But and you, it certainly could be read this way, but it could also be, it could very likely be that this close relative was already married and already had children. So if he married, if he redeemed the land and he married Ruth and raised up children for her deceased husband, what would actually happen is all of the things that he owned would go to the child that would result from his and Ruth's union. So that would actually leave his own children out in the cold. So potentially, he's saying, I can't redeem it because I'm going to put my family in danger. You do that. Uh, you redeem it. Right? So either way, whether he's being greedy or whether he has a family who has much to lose um, if he were to redeem the land, this is all God's doing. Right? God providentially provides these complications so that this near relative says, no way, don't want it, not going to do it, you take it. And Boaz will willingly and joyfully say, absolutely, yes, I will. Um, and so what we see in verses 7 to 8 is that the kinsman, he confirms the legality of this transfer, the legality of this uh, responsibility transfer to Boaz by giving Boaz his sandal. And the author of Ruth uh, explains it as saying that uh, it is a custom in the former times of Israel uh, in, in the exchange of land to hand someone else a sandal. That was the thing that sealed it, right? And if you think about it, it's kind of nasty. Right? If, you, if you created a transaction, just give me a paper receipt. You can keep your shoes on. I don't want your shoes. Or just give me a paper receipt. Uh, give me some photo documentation, something. I don't want your shoes. But that's how they did it. So, um, so Boaz officially is the kinsman redeemer. So we're all happy. Everyone's happy because... What we wanted, what we were waiting for, what we were longing for in the story has finally happened. Right, but before we get too carried away, let's look at um, the completion of this uh, transaction. Boaz responds to the completion of the transaction, waving around that sandal. Right, he responds saying this in verse 9, you are witnesses. He says this to the elders and all the people. Uh, he says, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that has belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased, of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Both Boaz makes it known that his full intention all along was to redeem the land and to raise up children to inherit that land, something that was, again, not required of him by God. And so as Boaz notes what he, uh, noted when he's speaking to Ruth, uh, as he, sorry, what Boaz noted when he was speaking to Ruth in Ruth 3, how no one would object to him marrying her because she is a woman of great reputation, he's proved right because Everyone responds with great joy, right? They respond with great joy, and they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, 
May your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. The rest of the community, they're excited. They're stoked because they recognize, hey, Ruth's a good girl. Right? Ruth is an amazing, godly girl. She's great. Go ahead and marry her. And so you know, when, when Boaz says that she was a woman of excellent reputation, right, he wasn't embellishing. He was stating the obvious. He was stating the truth. Um, and uh, basically, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack here, but um, the, the people of the community, they're, they're blessing Boaz and Ruth's union in an incredible way. They reference Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, you know, the ones who basically birthed all the, the sons who were the tribes of Israel. Um, they referenced them, and they said, may your house be like them, may it be prosperous like them. And uh, they're asking for prosperity for Boaz and Ruth. And so what we see here is, hey, Boaz, he actually makes good on the promise that he gave Ruth in chapter 3. Or he, said, he said to her, all that you have asked, I will do. He do he's done it. Or he's done it. He's redeemed her no matter what. No matter what the personal cost was to him. Boaz could have just married Ruth without taking the redemption of the land. Right? And he certainly could have raised children with her if he um, uh, married her, um, cutting himself out of the records without consequence if he just did that without land redemption. However, because Boaz loved Ruth so much that he was willing to die to self to raise up children for her deceased husband and to continue the family line. Because of that, because of that sacrifice, God does not let Boaz's name slip away in legal history. Normally it would have. Normally we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what Boaz had done because we just know the offspring. And Boaz would have disappeared. But God honors Boaz's obedience. And so we know from the end of this book, the genealogy, the record leading up to David, that Boaz was the, the father of, um, of uh, David's grandfather. And we know in Matthew 2 that Boaz's name is there as well as we're talking about the genealogy. And so God honors this tremendous sacrifice that Boaz makes to show his people that he still works, that he still intercedes, and he will honor those who honor him. Now, God moves this nearest relative out of the way so that his plans for Ruth and Boaz to come together will come to pass. The nearest relative, who was once a major obstacle to them coming together, is providentially moved out of the way so that Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi get their wish. Little do they know that God will do so much more in their lives through this union, but through this little step, through this union, through this marriage, God proves that he has the power to remove obstacles in our lives to accomplish his purposes for us. Whatever it is in your life that might be complicated, that might be in the way of what God wants for your life, not what you want for your life, but what God wants for your life, he will surely remove it out of your way so that you will do what he wants you to do. And that's, what, that's the, the lens that we have to look at this from. If you look at it from the lens of, oh, God has the power to remove everything out of the way so I get what I want, you are going to be disappointed. Right? You will be disappointed. But if you recognize this from the standpoint of you are under the authority of the sovereign God who will move you in and out of situations, out of life, so that you will please him ultimately in fulfilling his grand plan, not just for your life, but for the lives of everyone around you, then you won't be disappointed. When, this, uh, when Ruth and, and Boaz get married, they have no idea, they have absolutely no idea that their offspring are going to have significance in the history of Israel. They're just happy to get married. So what we see here is the power of God who looks beyond the immediate and sees the grand plan in view. And that's why we trust him. That's why we, when, we, when we look at the proof of God's power to move everything out of the way to accomplish his purposes, that's why it's so much greater. That's why it's so, so cool for us to consider that God 
when he allows us to run into the obstacles in our lives that seem frustrating, that seem like it's, it's hopeless, or that seems like it just doesn't make any sense, that there's, it's just a dead end. It's not. It absolutely isn't. I mean, it's a dead end in the sense that maybe what you want is no longer accessible to you, but it's not a dead end in the sense that God is moving you towards something greater. Whatever he's going to allow for you to do that will accomplish his purposes, that is far greater than what you desire. And that's just one of the proofs of God's great power to accomplish his purposes. The second proof of God's ability to deliver hope to his people is God intervenes in Boaz and Ruth's marriage. God intervenes in Boaz and Ruth's marriage. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. After Boaz marries Ruth, notice how the author describes God's intervention. He says, God enables Ruth to conceive and as a result, she gives birth to a son. The entire situation in the book of Ruth, necessitating the redemption of Ruth and the land, it wouldn't have needed to be played out if Ruth and Malon had children when they were in the land of Moab. If they had children, this is not, a, this is not even a story. Right? While, uh, if they had children while Malon was alive, Malon's children would be the ones who would come in and inherit the land later. There would be no need for, uh, necessarily for Ruth to go, um, to go gleaning if she met Boaz, there was no reason for them to continue to talk, no reason whatsoever. Right? If Ruth wanted remarriage, she could have had it. She was free to do so, but she didn't necessarily have to meet Boaz, nor did she have to marry Boaz. But Ruth 1.4 tells us that Elimelech's family was in the land of Moab for 10 years. Now, it's not clear at what point in that 10-year period that Ruth married Malon, but it's very likely that she married Malon in year one, right? It's arranged marriages. It's so much faster. Uh, I'm not advocating, by the way, that you go get arranged marriages, but I'm just saying it was an arranged marriage, so most likely it happened very quickly. Within that time period, though, regardless of whether it was 10 full years where she was married to Malon or whether it was a little bit less or a lot less, the fact is, the fact of the matter is, they were married for a good period of time, and they were not able to have children. They were not able to have children. God providentially, and we don't normally think of it in this way, right? but God providentially closed Ruth's womb, didn't let her, um, didn't let her conceive children in that time period during her marriage to Malon, so that... In the long view, in the big picture, her redemption with Boaz would accomplish his plans. That's really hard to wrap your mind around, right? He closed her womb in that time she was married to Malon so that when he dies, and he knew, he knew Malon, God knew that Malon would die, that Boaz, or that Ruth would be able to meet Boaz and so that they could get together and they could be the ones who establish God's kingly line later. That was all God's providential action. From a legal standpoint, we know that through their union, Malon's name would survive, as we saw earlier in Deuteronomy 25. That was God's intention for uh, this um, Leveret-type marriage, right? But it was his plan. It was God's plan for Boaz and Ruth's offspring to lead to God's own endgame. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but what's important to, to note is God's role in this pregnancy. Just as we saw in all of Bible history leading up to this point with, with, um, with Sarah, with Rebecca, with Rachel, with Leah, Right, these matriarchs of the nation of Israel, every single one. You go back to Genesis and you take a look. Right? Sarah couldn't have children. Rebecca couldn't have children. Rachel for a t uh, couldn't have children. Leah for a time couldn't have children. These matriarchs, at particular points in their lives, God closed their wombs. But then when the time was right, 
he opened their wombs so that they could have children. And these prominent women in Israelite history, these are the ones that Ruth is being compared to. Right? Why? Because it was in these moments that God is trying to draw our attention as we're reading to these individuals that we can see that there's something about these people that's special. There's something about these people that's special. We'll look at that a little bit more later, but it's to draw our eyes to understand there's something special about these children. These children are indeed gifts from God. And it's because of this, because God himself is the one who gives children to his people, that Solomon would later affirm in Psalm 127, 3 to 5, that children are a gift of the Lord, and those who have children are blessed. What we would think of as a natural byproduct of the marriage relationship is sadly not always a guarantee. Sadly not always a guarantee. For those ladies that we mentioned above, they waited on the Lord's intervention um, uh, in, in their wombs in painful silence for a period of their lives, knowing that God was sovereign over their wombs. They didn't know whether God would remove the, the, the stigma of childlessness from them. And we're talking about the ancient stigma of childlessness from them. We didn't, they didn't know that they would ever have children, but they waited. Right? They waited upon God for their children, and God graciously provided. Ruth has a similar wait for her children. But when God intervened in her life by giving her Boaz and intervened in their lives by giving them a son, he demonstrates in yet another instance of, uh, of prominent women in Israelite history that he is truly sovereign over the womb as he gives this exemplary woman a long-awaited child. Now, I do want to mention that just because you're faithful, just because you pray hard um, and... and um, you're suffering through childlessness. It doesn't necessarily mean that God will um, open the womb. But at least in this particular case, it was God's will to open Ruth's womb to give her and Boaz a child. So I don't want you to think that, oh, well, the application of this is everyone's going to have children. That's not necessarily true. But what we do know is that if God does give children, it is a gift and it is through his intervention that any of us are able to have children in the future. Now, Ruth and Boaz are not the only people who benefit from the birth of their son. Naomi is also blessed. Verse 14, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Think back to Naomi's return to Israel from Moab. She was miserable. She was bereft of her husband and her two sons, and she had been dealt very bitter blows from God. She returned home with almost nothing. She made this known to the women of the town, and they're saying, oh, Naomi's back, Naomi's back. And she says, stop calling me Naomi. I am not Naomi. I am Mara, for I am bitter. Right? She said that. That was how she chose to identify herself. That's how she viewed her situation. That was where her, the trajectory of her life was. And at the birth of her grandson, these women of the town who know Naomi's pain, they come back. Or they come back and they encourage her with a blessing. And they too recognize that this grandson is a great gift from God. And they interestingly call this little baby, a redeemer. They call this little baby a redeemer. How is it that this little one, who can't even do anything except for eat, sleep, cry, and go to the bathroom, be a redeemer for Naomi? Can't really do anything. Well, he's certainly not a redeemer in the sense that he will redeem the land or in any other technical sense of the word because that's fulfilled through Boaz, redeeming Ruth in marriage and raising up children in Malon's name. So it can't be that. This child is a redeemer in the sense that he is the offspring who continues the family line for her son Malon. And it's for this reason. 
It's for this reason that the women are hoping that he will be a restorer of life and a sustainer of Naomi's old age, where Naomi only saw death and hopelessness in her life. She had no future. She had no optimistic outlook on life. God unexpectedly brings new life back into her arms. And this new life, as Naomi knows, is not her son. She didn't bring this little baby back into, uh, back into the family. It was a new life that was given to her from her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, as you remember, Naomi overlooked when she returned to the land. Right? She said, I came home with nothing. And Ruth, poor Ruth, was like, um, I'm something, right? I'm someone to you. Don't you love me? Notice how the women of the town consider Ruth. As they note Ruth's great love for her mother-in-law and her great worth. They say that Ruth, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons. I know most of you, because we live in San Francisco, could not imagine having to give birth to seven children, no less seven sons, because that's going to be expensive. But um, it's significant. It's, of course, metaphorical. Seven, as many of you have heard or, or uh, know, is considered a number of completeness, a fullness in the Hebrew culture. Sons, of course, again, ancient Near East, right, were thought of to be uh, highly valuable. And, you know, actually, you know, this is very true in, the, in uh, Asian culture as well. Right? Sons are highly valuable because they carry the family name forward. Because when they get married and they have children, the children carry the, um, the family name. Ruth's love is so loyal to Naomi that these women of the town, they say, your daughter-in-law's love for you, the fact that she did all of this for you, even though she, had, she didn't have to do any of it for you, proves that she is more valuable, more precious than seven sons and seven sons. And this grandson that you hold in your arms, he is special, not just because of the fact that he carries on your family name, but he's special because he's from that precious, worth it daughter-in-law, this wonderful daughter-in-law who left everything behind for you. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, some scholars have suggested that Naomi's actions here of taking her grandson into her own arms and laying him on her lap and becoming her nurse means that she had formally adopted Obed as her her own son. Now, I know that we are not legal experts in Israelite law, but what we do know from Boaz's reason for marrying Ruth previously is, so, uh, is that he wanted to marry Ruth so that he could raise up this son to continue on the family name. So, Naomi doesn't need to adopt Obed. She doesn't need to adopt him because she, He's already her grandson. He's already going to carry on the family line. He is the rightful inheritor of the family land. And when he gets married, the, na the family name continues. So Naomi doesn't need to adopt this baby as her son um, to make his inclusion in the family line official. He's already a part of the family. But what you see here in her taking her grandson into her arms, putting him, him on her lap, is just the loving action of a grandma who will love and take care of her grandson. Now, another curious thing that we see, though, when we run into this uh, passage is the naming of Obed. Um, as the neighbor women are rejoicing over this baby, they're saying, uh, the author curiously says that they named him Obed. Right? And that should be curious to us because, well, in our culture, family Right? Usually the parents are the ones who name the child. Normally our neighbors don't have a say as to who are, what we get to name our children. Right? We have a lot of babies here at church. Right? There was no meeting where we said, okay, you get, to choose your, you get to choose this name for your son. You get to choose this name for your daughter. Uh, we're, I don't like that name, so we're going to change it to something else. Right? No, we don't do that because right? the parents would be like, hey, excuse me, 
this is our baby. You have no say whatsoever into what, uh, what we call our baby, what we name our baby. Now, granted, some families do change the names because someone took the name that they wanted, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the church gets a say in terms of what, we, uh, what parents call their child. So what we have here when the author says that the, the neighbor women named uh, Ruth and Boaz's son something, uh, it's not necessarily something poorly translated. What we have here is um, poetic or artistic license from the author basically saying that they... Uh, I mean, his parents named him, but the neighbor women, they were the ones affirming it and uh, the ones, um, uh, yeah, just excitedly telling other people about Obed's name. So uh, they're, they're the ones who are joyfully spreading the news that, um, that a son was born to Naomi and his name was Obed. And it's just a bit of artistic license. Now, the author ends verse 17 with a summary statement for his Israelite readers, explaining that Obed is the father of Jesse, who is in turn the father of David. Now, in case you misunderstood what I said in Ruth 3, the setting of the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, okay? The setting of the story of Ruth takes place in the, chi- in the time of the judges. But, but the author who wrote this book was writing it in the time period of King David's reign. Okay, so he's looking back and he's basically telling the story of David's family line. If you want to look at it this way, he's telling the backstory for David's family. Right? Backstory, backstory, backstory. Everyone has a backstory. This is David's backstory. Okay, uh, this is how his family came to be. This is the the historical foundation for what led to his kingship. God. And here's the, here's the greater point, okay? This is the reason why this is important. God was working in the lives of his people during the times of absolute darkness, right? You remember what, how, how judges ended, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was what? No king in the land. Right? It was lawless because there was no king in the land. They had judges, but the judges, as you saw, were worthless, the majority of them barely follow God, if that, right? In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of hopelessness, God's people who were stuck in a cycle of sinning, being rebuked and disciplined, and then being delivered, all they were asking God for was deliverance. And God says, I will give you a deliverer. I'll give you a better deliverer than these sorry people because I have a plan. You need to recognize how much you need me, how much you need a king before I give it to you. And it is in this setting, in the judges, in the wickedness, in the darkness, God says, I did not stop working for you. I never stopped working for you. I was always working to bring about your king, even though the end of Judges was gross, even though it was nasty, even though it seemed like all was lost, that God's people were just like the Canaanites in the land, even though it seemed like that, God was still working. He had not stopped. He's still working. He's still strong. He's still able to work, not just in spite of one person's sinfulness, not in spite of five people's sinfulness or ten people's sinfulness, but thousands of people's sinfulness, hundreds of thousands of people's sinfulness. Throughout all of that, you would think that our sinfulness would be enough to derail God's plans for our lives. And what God proves, what God demonstrates and shows through the story of Ruth is that no, All the sinfulness in the world cannot stop him from doing what he wants to do. Isn't that cool? All the sinfulness in the world cannot stop God from getting what he wants, what he has determined, what he has purposed to happen in all of human history. all, all, All that he wants, it will come to pass because God is able, because God is stronger. He reveals this in the midst of the darkness to show he has always, always had a glorious diamond of a plan waiting for his people. Always. And so 
This seems like some throwaway lines. They're not throwaway lines. This magnifies all that God's doing so that we can look back and we can be amazed by how strong God is. God, he sovereignly intervenes in Ruth's womb. That's a small thing. And this one-time intervention that brings about Obed, Jesse, and David, it affects the, cor- the rest of the course of all of human history. This one birth affects everything. It is, you know, and, and it, it's in the most improbable circumstance that God does this. He is the reason why we have hope. Right? He is absolutely powerful enough to overcome what to us is humanly impossible. And he does it to pave the way for his plan. And if that's not proof enough, to you that God is not able just to give hope, but also to deliver on that hope. We're going to quickly look at the third proof of God's ability to deliver hope to his people, which is God establishes the kingly line. God establishes the kingly line. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Now, as we read these final verses in Ruth, it's really tempting just to be like, okay, well, this story actually ended back in verse 17, so we're not going to, or uh, yeah, we're not going to pay attention to the rest of this book. It's just names, um, right? It's really easy to think that. It's really easy just to be like, ah, this doesn't matter. This has no, this has no importance. Uh, you know, even, even when I looked at the commentaries uh, to, to check and see what, uh, whether there's any significance to these people, there's not a lot of information here. And, you know, there's a lack of information here for good reason. We don't have any, we don't really have a lot of information about these people outside of Perez, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. But that's okay, because the point is not about how much we know about every single person on this list. The point is, what is the function of this list? Every time you see a genealogy in the Bible, you're not supposed to pay attention necessarily to every single person on the list and wonder why they're significant. What you want to understand when we look at a genealogy is, why is this here? Why is this here? What is God doing? What does he want me to know and understand here? The word generations here in verse 18 is the Hebrew word toledoth. Okay, the Hebrew word toledoth. And this word generations, it was significant, particularly in the book of Genesis, because it was supposed to help us understand the, line, the, the godly line, the godly family that God was bringing about to bring out his salvation plan. And that's why I bring out that Hebrew word, because you know normally I don't tell you these words. Right? The last time we saw this specific word, toledoth, was in Genesis 37, verse 2, when we are given the genealogy, right, the generations of Jacob's family. Now, it is tempting to gloss over the names in genealogies, but as we said, what's the function? Right? What's the purpose of these lists? Moses, in Genesis, purposefully used genealogies to trace the godly, the line of godly individuals through whom God would bring the Savior of all mankind. When you go back to Genesis 3.15, you have two lines of people being set up in opposition to one another, right? You have the seed or the descendants of the serpent versus the seed or the descendants of Eve, the woman. And what we see here is that you have the generations of uh, of the woman being traced because it's through the woman, it's through Eve that salvation comes. It's through Eve that salvation comes. So we're paying attention to this family line. Who is going to be the one who will come and crush the serpent's head? Who will be the one who will deliver us all from our sins and return us back to the point where we are all sinless, back to Eden pre-sin? Who's going to be the one who does that for us? And so we're paying attention to the godly line of people that God is bringing out. And we see, oh, it's Abraham. Right? Eventually, it's, it's Noah. Then it's Abraham. Then it's Isaac. Then it's Jacob. And now we're moving down the list. Right? Um, it's through this family that God will redeem mankind. When you narrow it down further, you go to Genesis 49. You see that the one who will ultimately crush the serpent's head, the one who will 
who will hold the scepter is going to come from the line of Judah. The line of Judah. You know this because you've heard it so many times. It's Christmas time. You know that the child is, is, is from the tribe of Judah. But this, it's, it's significant because why Judah? Why Judah? Because of Judah's firstborn. Not the one who was sinful and was killed, Tamar's husband, but the one who was born as a result of uh, basically Judah doing a not so good thing, but still basically raising up his own firstborn, uh, children for his own firstborn in Genesis 38. But that's why Perez is the one who's highlighted, because Perez is the firstborn of Judah, and so it's through Perez that the line continues, and that's why it continues on down all the way through Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David. This genealogy, it's showing us, hey, pay attention. The reason why, remember, we're we're, uh, this, this book is addressed to people who are living in King David's time. This book is telling us this is why David is the right man on the throne. This is why David is the one that we pay attention to. And this is why he alone has the right to the throne and not Saul. Because David comes from the right family. Right? We're finally in the right family. And so since there's been no genealogy since Genesis, the author of Ruth, he's basically pointing back to that last genealogy in Genesis, pointing back to Jacob's prophecy, and he's saying, hey, we're picking up where Genesis left off, and we're continuing to trace the godly line who will oppose the descendants of the serpent with David. David's the one where we pick up. So in a time where there were no kings and people did what was right in their own eyes, God, he breaks through to show people that all hope is not lost. He breaks through to show them that despite the chaos, despite the wickedness, despite the sin, he is always working, he is always in control, and he always intended on fulfilling his plan and promises in this particular way. Think about how incredibly fragile God's plan appears to be. All it takes is one catastrophic failure, one untimely death, one disqualification, one kinsman who chooses to decide he's going to double-cross Ruth by taking the land and leave her childless, and the story ends. That's all it takes. It hinges always on one thing. And if the story ends, think about it this way. If the story ended, no more redemption, no more David, no more Jesus, no more gospel, no more hope for you and me. We might as well be outside doing whatever we want and not at church, right? But because God is actually in control, because he actually is powerful enough to save, because he sovereignly allows all of the good and all of the bad in human history to advance his plans, God cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped, right? The hope that is anchored in him will not be disappointed And I understand that you may leave our study tonight still thinking about God's power and God's will in a very hypothetical, wishy-washy way. And I understand that some of you may leave tonight uncertain of whether everything that we've learned about God's power and hope, whether that even applies to your lives at all. It might apply to the lives of other people, maybe the people who are maybe better at praying or better at reading their Bibles, but it's not going to apply to me. It's not going to apply to my life situation, right? That's what you might be tempted to think. That's my how, that might be how you leave tonight, but I want you to consider, even if you have that in your mind, all that God has done to get us to this particular point in history, what he has done to get us here, all the things, all the ways that he has intervened, and shown his mercy and his grace. He's worked through a lot. And if God can work through all those variables, if he can work through all of the mess, all of the issues that come up in the lives of every single person who has ever lived in human history and still accomplish his salvation plan through Jesus, can we have any doubt? Can we have any doubt whatsoever that if we are his, that he'll continue to do the same thing for us. That we'll eventually be able to live with him forever. 
And we'll be in a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be able to rejoice, finally free of all the sin that's in our lives. Right? Is there any doubt? I understand from a practical standpoint, yeah, sure. Right? We will doubt. I doubt. But when you consider all that God has done to get us here, it gives us some encouragement that even when we cannot see, even when we cannot trace the hand of God and to understand why we have to go through particular trials, why we have to be afflicted in these particular ways, why we have to endure through certain trials, things that leave us with broken hearts and disappointment. Why, why, why? I don't know why. I can't tell you why. But I can tell you that the God who is stronger than everything. He's allowed this into your life for a reason. And he still loves you. He's never stopped loving you. He's still working even through the pain. And if he can work even through the pain, can he not uphold you even when you feel like you are crushed? You might buckle all the way down to your knees, maybe flat to your face, but God will never allow for you to be completely obliterated. He's still going to hold you up. He's still going to hold you up. Yes, your life may be complicated, but it's not too complicated for God. You may not receive what you want for your life, but you will receive what God has determined is best for your life. This is no Joel seeing your best life now garbage. This is God giving you what is best for your life. And not just for your life. Because if we think about it in that terms, in those terms, we're just being selfish. Right? God is not just giving you what's best for your life. He's giving you what's best for your life, for the lives of the people of your family around you, for the lives of your church family around you, for the lives of every single unbeliever you'll come into contact with. God gives you the best with everything in view. Right? And it might not seem good to you now. But he has a greater plan, one beyond that we can see. And his ability to deliver on that hope and to give you the best for all of your life is the reason why he is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. As much as you and I may have pleasant memories of our Christmas hopes being fulfilled, we all have at least experienced disappointment, right? Our Christmas hopes dashed at least once in our lives, right? What we longingly anticipated was not meant to be, but thankfully, the hope that we have in God is not like our hope in our Christmas presents. The hope that he holds out to us in his word is a sure hope. It's guaranteed to come to pass because it's guaranteed in himself. If he is able to intervene in every single aspect of our lives and overcome all of the sin that's in the world to still accomplish his plans, we can certainly trust him. And when our anticipation and our hope is in him and what he's going to do, oh, that is so much greater than what we want. As we've seen throughout the book of Ruth, there are multiple occasions where we're left unsure if Ruth and Naomi are going to be taken care of. We don't know what God's going to do. Uh, we don't know if the other kinsman redeemer is going to throw a wrench in the plans. But God demonstrates ultimately that he is able to deliver on his promises. He proved his ability to follow through on the hope that he provided by making Boaz the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He proved his ability to intervene by giving Ruth and Boaz a son in their marriage. And he ultimately proves his ability to follow through on his promises as he establishes the kingly line that he laid the groundwork for in the times of Israel's forefathers, thousands of years prior. And though the promises of God may at times appear to us as abstract promises, promises that are far away, maybe nice sentiments, whatever, that won't translate to actual hope in our current life. We have to remember that these words, they're not just empty words with no meaning, no bearing on our lives today. The reason why you and I 
have even heard of the good news of the gospel is because of God's faithfulness in real human history to deliver his people. His track record of faithfulness demonstrates his real power to overcome all obstacles to bring us to himself, to restore everything back to what it used to be. And so as we turn our minds to think about the birth of Christ this December, this Christmas, may we be encouraged and challenged to trust and love God more as we consider God's ability to do everything that he says he'll do. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word, and we're grateful to you for how you show us your strength. You show us your ability to intervene in our history to make a way for our salvation and not just our justification, but our sanctification, our, our, our process of becoming more like Jesus and ultimately our glorification when we're reunited with you in heaven with new bodies incapable of sin. Father, we know that this season can be difficult for, for us in, in a number of ways, whether it's stress that comes from, from um, presence or from family or from finals or deadlines. There's a lot of pressures. Maybe even just feeling alone. Despite these pressures, despite these areas where we might be tempted to feel like we're isolated, where we might be tempted to feel like you don't care or that there's no hope for us going forward, we pray that you would help us see that there is hope. There is hope because you're here. Because you're here, because you're powerful, because you are able, we have every reason to hope. And in our seasons of doubt, in our seasons of hope and discouragement, we pray that you would bring the, the people that we need to hear from into our lives, people who will lovingly challenge us, people who will lovingly lift us up, people who will lovingly point us to the hope that we have in you so that we can be encouraged and so that we can also worship you knowing that even if it seems like we've come back empty, that we have nothing, that we have something, at least. We have Christ, and that is enough. Thank you, Father, for your word. Pray that you would glorify yourself as we uh, discuss uh, just some of our thoughts about you uh, in this wrap-up time. It's your son's son, we pray. Amen.